if we know anything about Aristotle and his account of the heavens, then we know how central for him is the everlasting motion of the heavens. Whether you're reading the physics or especially the lambda of the metaphysics, the everlasting motion of the heavens is crucial. In fact, and I'll talk about this also a little bit later, um, it is impossible that there should not be not merely an everlasting uh, and eternal material substance, but that that material substance could ever cease to move because, Aristotle argues, time can't cease. I'll touch on that a little bit later. But it is then the starting point when we think about a classically Aristotelian conception of the universe, it entails not merely that there are heavens, there clearly are heavens, but that those heavens should themselves be everlasting and everlastingly moving. For Thomas Aquinas, uh, one of the features of what he calls the renovatio mundi, so the renewal of the world, involves precisely the claim that the heavens stop moving. And so on first pass, this might seem shocking that for those people who skip Thomas's cosmology, first, shame on you. Uh, but, but second of all, um, this may seem somewhat uh, a bit odd because we're accustomed to think of Thomas receiving more or less his physics from Aristotle. We may accept that he disputes him here or there on metaphysical points or things, but we tend to imagine that we can just reliably read Aristotle's physics and know what Thomas thinks. And when we read Thomas's physics, we at least as with Thomas presume that he knows what Aristotle thinks. So this should strike us as shocking because Aristotle cannot and will not admit that the heavens are the kinds of things that stop. And Thomas is committed to the claim that at least at the renewal of the world, they do and will cease their motions. So what I want to look at today is in part why he thinks that so, that is why Thomas thinks that so, um, what we should make of that argument, and then whether or not um, Thomas's reasoning here is just a terrible case of ad hoc reasoning trying to juggle his many authorities, or whether maybe he has a principled reason to come to the conclusion that he does. So now this may be, some of what I will talk about now may be new to some, may be boringly old to others, but it, to understand this, we need to rehearse actually at some length uh, what Thomas thinks celestial bodies are and how they work. So for those of you who know uh, medieval and ancient cosmology well, you can relax and make sure that I'm right. Um, for those of you who don't know it well, welcome to medieval cosmology. So to begin, it's going to be helpful to recall just what Aquinas takes celestial bodies to be. And to do that, it might be helpful to remember what they are not. So for Aquinas, first of all, heavenly bodies are not elemental bodies. That is, unlike all sublunar objects, namely those things that we encounter and interact with in this world of flux, of coming to be and passing away, celestial bodies, by contrast, are not composed of earth, water, air, or fire, 
nor any mixture of those elements. While they are clearly material, as they are clearly visible, and thus they must be material, or at least some of them are visible, and we'll touch on this later, celestial bodies are made, on Thomas's view and Aristotle's, of their own kind of matter, matter which is uniquely suited to and whose potency, except to place, is altogether exhausted and fulfilled by their forms. Now, I, I should say here, before the people checking the bibliographies want to leap at me, um, there is some dispute about exactly what Thomas took the celestial bodies to be made of. I'm presenting here his most mature presentation that you will find in his commentary on the De Cello or in the De Substanci Separatis. So there is some, some development of Thomas's thought on this point, uh, but either you can ask about it in questions, but I don't want to delay us here. As we will see below, the unending circular motion of the heavens is altogether in contrast to the natural motion of elemental bodies. Likewise, the incorruptibility of heavenly bodies stands in sharp contrast to the constant change and flux of sublunar bodies. For Aquinas, as for Aristotle, the perpetual, regular, circular motion of the heavens, or at least the visible peroxidens motion of the stars and planets, sun and moon, and their inalterability in quality and quantity, that is, being always the same, except in terms of place or accidental features of place, such as relative brightness due to proximity, as well as their lack of generation or corruption among them. We don't have, again, phenomenologically looking up at the heavens in normal human lifespans, uh, we don't have new stars coming to be, or any stars that we see passing away. Right? Um, these are all evident to the senses, on Thomas's view, and confirmed by continuous observation. To get your mind in this place, consider, for example, the ability to predict accurately all celestial phenomena, where any given star will be centuries and centuries in the past, and have those predictions be accurate or accurately to predict exactly when solar eclipses or lunar eclipses will occur centuries before they happen. None of these features are found among elemental bodies, whether simple or mixed. Now here we must also recall that celestial bodies are not, as we might imagine them to be, material spheres of great size passing through a void or some sort of empty space, nor even some kind of yielding medium, uh, luminiferous ether or something like that. Rather, to see what Aquinas saw when he gazed upon the heavens, we need to imagine a series of hollow nested spheres. Right? So they've got a certain thickness, but hollow nested spheres, each one in direct contact with the sphere above and the sphere below it. These spheres on Thomas's view aren't just zones, they're material objects. They are solid 
at least in the sense of being stable and unbounded. They're not gaseous and they don't float like that. Um, but again, they're not made of, say, crystal, which would be elemental. For the most part, on Thomas's view, the celestial spheres are transparent, which is why the night sky, for example, appears to have so much empty space. And while we, why we are able to see celestial objects both near, like the moon, or distant, like the fixed stars, at the same time. In other words, the lower spheres aren't opaque and blocking out our vision of the higher spheres. The reason we don't see them in the daytime, Thomas knew, as we know now, is because the sun is too bright for us to see them. However, while the spheres themselves are transparent, some of them, at least, have within them luminous bodies, namely, in order of proximity to the elemental world, the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the fixed stars. These luminous bodies are embedded, that's my word, not his, embedded in the spheres, and so their movement across the night sky, or the day sky for the moon and the sun, and their other very periodic movements are largely, largely indebted to the spheres in which they are found. Right? So we don't need, we shouldn't think of them in the modern idea that they're a blob of something that's moving around. The blob is in the sphere, and the sphere is rotating. That's that's what he has in mind. Of course, it was well known to the ancients, as it was well known to Thomas through their writings that the celestial motions were not and are not altogether simple, not the least of which is the infamous retrograde motion of the planets, which gives them their name, which means, of course, wanderer, or the very brightness of different planets at different times of the year or across years. To explain these complicated motions, the ancients theorized a series of celestial bodies in between the other spheres which bear the planets and the stars, each sphere with its own distinct circular motion. Now, there was an ancient, very lively debate, um, which, again, I'm going to skip over a bit, um, in the ancient world about the precise number of these celestial motions to account for all the different moving that's going on in the heavens the final number being either 47 or 49 or 55, depending on how you count. And I, I can stand with Aristotle here. Even he came up with his own system and then got very nervous and said, basically, but I'll have to pass this by the mathematicians to make sure I did this right. So I'm paraphrasing, but that's more or less what he says in the metaphysics lambda. Now, we should also note here, there were other theorized motions, just to get the whole picture, namely the epicyclical motion of the planets within the spheres. This is a complicated idea, and perhaps it may come up in questions, uh, but this is the idea that the, you've got the rotating sphere, but then the star, or the planet rather, it doesn't just sit in the same place, it has a little circle that it does within within the spheres to get this sort of motion-ish around. Uh, so it has a circular motion within the sphere within which it's embedded. Uh, this involves complicated discussions of physics because 
the spheres are, as we will see, incorruptible, um, but to move through something looks like a kind of corruption. Um, and so that's, that's complicated. Uh, for Thomas, um, nonetheless, and for the others, somehow it has to work because the mathematics have to work. Um, and he does appeal to that a little bit when he discusses the Empyrean heaven and how re uh, resurrected bodies could move through the incorruptible sphere of the Empyrean. Now, it also came to be observed that the fixed stars are not quite as fixed as they might seem, or at least they do not have one simple motion across the sky. Uh, since it was accepted that the highest body, the first moved mover, the prima mobile, must have a single and simple motion by which all other mo motions come to be ordered as one. It was opined by the ancients and accepted, but not as ancient as Aristotle, and accepted by Thomas that the prima mobile wasn't the starry firmament, but a sphere beyond that, that we don't see. For Thomas, this sphere is called the aqueous or crystalline heaven, called aqueous or watery, not, Thomas thinks, because it is made of elemental water, that can't be on his view, but because of its transparency. It also allows in a kind of, um, in a certain way, uh, to make sense of the division of the waters above the heavens and the waters below the heavens. You have the elemental waters below and the aqueous heaven above. Um, Finally, there's, beyond the aqueous heaven is the highest heaven, the empyrean, the fiery or intellectual heaven. Curiously, while Thomas admits the existence of the empyrean, he also notes that it is neither revealed and known by faith through scripture, nor is it demonstrable by reason. We know it's there merely on human authority. So he's still willing to work with it. And his earlier confidence in that human authority becomes more tenuous by the time he writes the Summa uh, because he recognizes the weakest kind of argument is authority. But he does, he thinks it's, it's luminous, but not, not ordinary light because if that were the case, then we would always have light shining on us because it's the fixed sphere that encases the whole world, so to speak. Um, so it has to be light in a different way. Uh, but uh, so we can't know it by observation. Uh, and it's never mentioned directly in scripture. So there you go. Um, now, since the Empyrean is noted, among other things, for its immobility, and it raises a whole series of questions, um, I'm not going to occupy too much of our time with it right now, since we want to talk about celestial motion, not celestial immobility. So now I'd like to move to the motion of the heavenly bodies, now that we know what we're, what we're dealing with. Having established in a preliminary way that celestial what celestial bodies are, uh, we want to pass now to that, um, for Thomas, deeply significant but clearly evident fact about the celestial bodies, namely their local, more specifically rotational and epicyclical motion. As noted before, that the heavens move is not in doubt. Even the most unlearned observer can see that the celestial bodies, or at least they can see the luminous ones, move. 
Even without careful tracking of all of the stars, it is also clear that celestial bodies have cyclical motions, some daily, some monthly, others seasonal, others yearly, or others taking many years to complete their cycle. Moreover, it is equally clear that the motion of heavenly bodies is altogether unlike the motion of the sublunar realm. Heavenly motions are regular, uniformly circular, or derivatively circular for the planets, and absolutely reliable and predictable with mathematical certitude. On an Aristotelian view approved by Aquinas, motions can be reduced to four kinds. Motions of corruption and generation, that is, of substance. Uh, motions of alteration, a change of quality. Motions of growth or diminution, a change of quantity. And locomotion, a change of place. It is characteristic of elemental bodies, including, Thomas thinks, even the simplest of elemental bodies, to be subject to all four kinds of motion. And it is also characteristic of the locomotion of um, elemental bodies in particular, whether they be simple or mixed, to be rectilinear, to go from point A to point B. So even the pure elements on Thomas's view is important to remember this can be transformed into other elements. You can make water become air under the right conditions with the right kind of active potency in the right circumstances. The celestial bodies, by contrast, are characterized as being in potency only to one kind of motion, namely locomotion, Thomas's potentia ad ubi, the potency to place. And locomotion of a single kind, namely circular or rotational motion, is what he has in mind. As Thomas understands it, locomotion is the noblest of these motions, and circular motion the most exalted kind of locomotion. But why should that be? To understand the special status of locomotion as such, it is sufficient to note that while all other motions result in an alteration intrinsic to what is moved, and indeed Thomas does assert that substantial and quantitative change are rooted in alteration of some kind, qualitative change. Locomotion, on the other hand, is in a sense extrinsic to the thing moved, being a change of place, not a change in the thing itself. As, a, as freedom from change is, on Thomas's view, characteristic of perfection, a motion which does not touch a substance intrinsically would be more fitting to what is more perfect and more exalted, and so the kind of motion suitable to celestial bodies. To grasp the perfection of circular motion in particular, we need to attend to the distinction between imperfect and perfect activity. In imperfect activity, so long as, or to the extent that, the activity is taking place, the end of that activity or that motion is not actual. When the end is actual, the activity ceases. In perfect activity, in contrast, the end exists and is actual 
in the process of the activity itself. So we might think of something like baking a cake or walking to the store as imperfect activities. So long as you are baking a cake, you do not yet have a cake. And once you have a cake, unless you're not good at it, you stop baking. And strictly speaking, in physics, you have stopped baking the cake. You're now burning the cake if you, if you keep it in the oven. Likewise, you are not at the store when you are walking to the store. And once you've arrived at the store, you're walking, at least you're walking to the store, ceases, even if you begin a new disjunctive activity, namely walking inside the store. The paradigm case of perfect activity is intellectual, and this will be relevant in a moment, such as contemplation. To perform an act of pondering something, say, pondering the motions of the celestial bodies, just is an act, the activity of contemplation. You don't stop contemplating once you have a contemplation the way you stop baking once you've baked the cake. To contemplate is, if you will, to have the cake already and to be baking it, if such a thing could happen. In this sense, uh, while it is in this sense that rectilinear motion is imperfect, going from point A to B is imperfect, while circular motion is the most perfect, at least among locomotions. Unlike rectilinear motion, circular motion, and especially the circular motion of the celestial bodies, is perpetual and continuous without proper beginning or end. While a rotating body is, in a sense, always in potency to another disposition of the same body, and so its potential parts continually change place. If I, this spins here, then this part, even though it's a continuous thing, is now here, now it's here, right? That's the idea. Um, uh, so, uh, in a more fundamental sense, though, the rotating body stays where it is, like a spinning top. The spinning top, in a sense, is moving, but in another important sense, it's staying put. And that's the closest, on Thomas's view, that a physical change of place can be to the perfection of intellectual activity. Now, is this motion, Thomas asks, natural to the celestial bodies? In an important sense, Thomas denies that these movements are natural in one sense. We'll get to the way they're natural in another. On his view, proper natural motion always has an inclination to some place where the body comes to rest and motion ceases. To be sure, in the proper sense, elemental bodies are not themselves movers the way, say, an animal is. I'm talking about pure elemental bodies. But the proper mover of a pure elemental body is the agent that generates it, giving it its form that is inclined to its natural place. Um, and also, in an improper sense, one can move simple elemental bodies or mixed bodies insofar as they're moving as elemental bodies, like if I fall down some stairs, right? Then I'm moving as an elemental body, not so much as an animal. Um, it's the agent that either impedes that motion or remove impediments that can improperly be said to be the mover. Think of a tank holding water up high. Um, 
and then think of opening the spigot and the water coming out as impeding motion and allowing motion. But when a body, an elemental body, has reached its proper place for Earth, the center of the sphere, for water above that, then followed by air, and finally fire, it comes to rest. Its rectilinear motion ceases. Now, if this is the paradigm for natural motion, then it is clear why the motion of celestial bodies is not natural in that sense. Um, celestial bodies, unlike elemental ones, do not have a natural place. There is no location or disposition of the celestial sphere where the motion comes to rest, towards which it speeds away when it gets closer, or, or you can only move it away from that coercively. Right? That's not what happens in eternal and effortless circular motion. Rather, the celestial body is equally inclined to every position on its rotational path, so to speak. No more at home in one way than another, and always in potency to the rest of the rotation at every point along the way. So if natural inclining does not account for the rotation and circular motion of the celestial spheres, what does? Here, Thomas accepts the ancient view that motion of this sort can only be explained by intelligent activity. We can know, he argues, that the, that the celestial spheres cannot be animals in the terrestrial sense. That is, we cannot explain their motions the way we might explain the motion of a bird or a dog. Um, the spheres, after all, if they should have some kind of soul, can't have vegetative powers, since these would involve growth and generation, and those things don't happen. It would also involve corruption, and that doesn't happen. Neither does he think they can have sensory powers for several reasons, but most of these hang on the bodily structure of the celestial sphere. Sensory powers require discrete sense organs, and those organs need to have proper elemental composition that undergo the right kinds of changes to respond to the sensory features of the relevant sense object. And these organs then have to go through further alterations when they receive the sensory species. Celestial spheres, however, are uniform and non-elemental and not subject to alteration. Hence, the only kind of intrinsic motive power they could have to explain their motion would be a purely intellectual soul that is a, a sort unknown below the moon, making them, if they are animals, animals decidedly unlike any other kind that we know. Curiously, Thomas is less than definitive on the question of the nature of the intelligences that move the spheres. We might presume he has a strong opinion. He actually doesn't have a strong opinion, or a strong opinion isn't what we think it is. He's aware of the ancient lore, some of which makes of the celestial spheres merely elemental bodies, and that's a position that he does reject quite clearly um, because of the character of celestial motion. But he's also aware of the tradition that they're peculiar kinds of animals animated only by this intellectual soul, or else he will say united, but not the way form is united to matter, um, but as a kind of separate substance whose job it is to tend to the sphere. 
Um, this is a position that he associates with Plato, among others. He thinks possibly this is Aristotle's view. And for more on that, see his comments in the De Substantia Separatis. Uh, to the two possible options, namely that the celestial spheres are peculiar kinds of animals, or that they are inanimate bodies that are united or associated with spirits. Thomas also knows the possibility that maybe God himself produces the motion directly. Thomas, however, doubts this latter view um, in terms of probability, given God's more general mode to bring about worldly effects through secondary causes rather than immediately by his power alone. Um, so Thomas inclines to the position uh, that, that the spheres are moved by extrinsic, that is, angelic activity. That's their motive cause. But he doesn't rule out the celestial animal theory. Rather, on Thomas's view, he, act, he says the two approaches don't entail a significant enough difference to warrant the need to press the matter any further. Um, what is crucial on his view is that the motion of the celestial spheres is produced not by a natural inclination in the celestial body to a natural place, but by an intelligence. That said, Thomas does not altogether deny thinking of the motion of celestial bodies as a natural motion. He notes that while the celestial body does not tend to any one place, it has a natural, he calls it aptitudo, aptitude, or circular motion. That is, when the intelligence does cause the circular motion, which is here and now always, the sphere is not undergoing coerced or violent motion. It's not contrary to its nature to rotate. It is open to its rotation, and so in a sense, rotating comes to it naturally. That said, for Thomas, there would be nothing contra naturam for the sphere to be at rest, a view that will be crucial to for his understanding of the disposition of the celestial spheres in the renewal of the world after the judgment. Note here, I should say, that this, the parallel that I mentioned uh, at the beginning with the Aristotelian view, parallel but difference. The Aristotelian view, which admits and relies upon intelligence to account for the motion of the celestial spheres. That's the way they, they're moving on Aristotle's view. Again, take a look at the uh, lambda. But for, for uh, Aristotle, the eternal motion of these spheres is crucial. Apart from the eternal moving substance, one with which whose motion is circular, Aristotle thinks um, that there, we, there, if there isn't eternal motion, we can't guarantee that time would not cease. But on Aristotle's view, the notion that time should cease, or contrastly have a beginning, is incoherent. That's Aristotle's argument. And so therefore, the motion of the stars must necessarily be eternal. Aquinas is not convinced by Aristotle's arguments regarding the impossibility that there should be a beginning of time, or for that matter, that time should end. That said, he does accept the idea that the motion of the spheres does not, considered in itself, indicate any temporal beginning or end. This is the subtlety of his argument in the De Eternitate Mundi. Um, the motion of the stars not being the kind of motion that starts from somewhere and tends to go to some discrete place 
And since the, the substances in motion are themselves ungenerated and ungenerable, if all you were doing is pondering the motions and the things in motion themselves, you would be perfectly entitled to think that there's nothing wrong, that they should always be in motion and never cease to be in motion. That's, that's how Thomas threads that needle. So what does the celestial motion do and what is it for? Apart from causing the planets and stars that are in the spheres to pass across the sky and to arrange themselves in various pleasing patterns, what does celestial motion do? When something is burned by fire, things seem clear enough. The burned object is altered or corrupted if we burn it all the way. That is, the burned object is brought into motion by the motion of the fire. That is, the fire moves through its calorific power, with all respect to Hume, to produce a motion in the other body by setting it on fire. When a frog generates a frog, things likewise seem clear enough. The male frog, on Aristotle's view, we would probably say male and female, but the male frog acts, that is, it moves, engaging its generative power upon the maternal matter and bringing that matter into motion, through which motion is educed the form of a frog. At first glance, it seems that we do not need anything else to explain the resulting motions. However, here we must recall the oft-repeated adage, omne quod movetur, ab alio movetur. Everything which is moved is moved by another. Since in the case of fire and in the case of the frog, we have not only the motion produced in the patient, but also the motion of the agent, we need some other to account for the agent's motion, the putting into motion of their powers to produce change. What is it that moves the heat of the fire to produce a change in the ignited object? What is it that moves the generative power of the frog to produce the tadpoles? On Aristotle's physics, which Thomas follows here, even natural potent, active potencies must be put into motion in order for them to cause motion in another. And for all sublunar natural motions, this originating motion comes from the motion of the celestial bodies. To be clear, we need to be careful not to misunderstand the claim being made here. The celestial bodies are not the proximate motive cause of sublunar natural motions. They are quite clearly and very literally remote causes. They're very far away. Uh, the motions of the higher spheres passing their motive causality down through the various heavens, which being perfect only receive motion, right? Uh, but finally arriving to the elemental terrestrial world. They are also universal causes. Unlike finite and particular causes, like the fire and the frog we considered above, which act univocally and only on whatever immediately can receive their motion, universal causes exert a more general influence bringing about a whole array of distinct effects in diverse substances, each in accord with its ability to receive the motion of the sphere in its own way. 
being universal causes, the celestial spheres do not pass on their motion in a univocal way. That is, the motion of the sun going around the earth doesn't make me rotate. That's the idea. Uh, but the motive power, uh, what they do, produces and moves the motive powers of the sublunar objects. That said, celestial motions do not, in general, bring about any sublunar motions without the activity of the sublunar substances themselves. While the motion of the celestial bodies is necessary for the sublunar motions, it is nearly always insufficient. After all, even if we can say, as both Aristotle and Aquinas do, that man is generated by man and the sun, solar movements cannot cause the generation of any man without the activity of the man himself. Even if we think of sublunar substances as instruments of the resulting changes and motions, they are necessary instruments which, apart, which impart their own mode of acting on the resulting motion, and without whose distinct and contributing motion, the effect cannot come about. Indeed, Thomas will note that the very fallibility of the sublunar substance is relevant here, because the perfect and unimpeded motion of the celestial bodies does not and cannot communicate its own necessity to the sublunar substance, which can be impeded and does not act always, but for the most part in certain ways. It can fail in its proper natural activity. I don't know if Thomas is gonna talk more about that later. Maybe he will, I don't know. Um, now there is, of course, I'm just going to add parenthetically, the famous case of the generation of lower animals from putrefied matter. Um, but even on Thomas, that is, this activity of the sun causes maggots to spontaneously generate in decaying flesh. But even here, Thomas doesn't think this is really properly an exception. The operative notion that is going on is that the decayed matter has a kind of potency which can be moved by the celestial bodies, particularly the sun. The motion of the sun, after all, can't just produce, produce maggots anywhere all the time for no reason whatsoever, but only when the relevant matter with the relevant potencies is moved by the solar motion to act. So what the exception here is just you have, you don't have univocal cause, he thinks, to produce certain kinds of worms or eels. Now, what all of this means, among other things, is not only that all sublunar motions result in part from the motions of the celestial bodies, but also that should the celestial motions cease, those same sublunar motions would also cease. There would be no more generation or alteration or increase or decrease caused by, caused by or resulting in the elemental bodies. Even those bodies which would have a natural power to bring about those motions, like the heat of the fire or the generative power of the frog, they would no longer do so, nor indeed be able to do so. It is not that they would have lost their natures, it's just that they would not be moved. According to Thomas, the end or telos of the motion of the celestial bodies is precisely to bring about the motions of the sublunar world. On Thomas's view, no motion exists for its own sake. And this is especially true for the circular motion of the celestial bodies, whose motion is not as such 
towards or away from anything and has no natural or proper place of rest. As Thomas sees it, just as the generative motions of plants and animals occur not merely um, that this or that animal should reduce some particular matter to act, but their telos is that the whole species might continue and so partake in a likeness of the eternity of God. So the motions of the celestial bodies occur so that through their producing of sublunar motions, they might partake of the universal causality of God. Furthermore, it is not merely for the sake of any motion, but rather for the whole ordered series of motions of elemental bodies who then get mixed to produce mixed bodies from which are bought forth plants, which are then consumed by animals, all of which serve the growth, nourishment, preservation, use, and especially generation of man. Yet even this isn't the whole story, since all bodily motions are what they are for the sake of the generation of men and those things necessary for that generation. It follows that should there be some definite and finite number of men whom this whole world, for whom this whole world system exists, once that number is obtained, further generation will not be necessary. Moreover, if that number should be the fitting number for the perfection of the world, taken as a whole, then any further generation would be counter to that good, as would any other generations or related motions that are ordered towards the generation of man. Since Thomas holds that there is such a perfect number of men, namely the elect, he holds that once this number is achieved, then the motions of the sublunar world should cease. As those sublunar motions follow from the motions of the heavens, then the heavens must cease. And in the end, and in the end of celestial motion, in both senses of the world end, all the natural bodies of the world, both above and below the moon, will come to be at rest. I'll do some summarizing here so we have some time for discussion. Now, um, Thomas then thinks that when the renewal of the world comes, uh, what in terms of the world above the moon, uh, what precisely happens is this ceasing of their activity. Below the moon, things are very different. We get the, uh, the coming of elemental fire, purging all of the elements, um, destroying all mixed bodies, uh, because remember, mixed bodies are for the sake of plants, which are for the sake of animals, which are for the sake of man. We've got the men we need. So we don't need any of those. We just need elemental bodies, purified of the corrupting power of sin. But that corruption never made it to the moon or beyond. So those things didn't need to be purified by elemental fire, even if they could. The resulting order then has an elemental world below the moon, and a stable heavens above. Now, um, for Thomas, this does raise a few questions. Um, he asks, for instance, if the motion of celestial um, bodies, if there's no motion of, well, no further motion of celestial bodies, how can they still illumine, since they're supposed to be shining even brighter than before? And as another example, he asks, well, if the motion of celestial bodies is not more inclined to one place or another, where would they end up? Right? What position will they occupy when this all finishes? To the first question, and I'll, I'll summarize here, um, Thomas will distinguish between those motions that involve a transmutatio materie, that involve an intrinsic transformation, and those which involve a, in his language, 
diffusio similitudinis forme in medio. So a diffusion of the likeness of its form in a medium, namely shedding light and your color passing through the illumined air. The latter sort, he says, is compatible with being unchanged. And therefore, the stars will continue to shine. Uh, and by their shining, other luminous sublunar elements like fire will also glow as well. As to the second opinion, um, he notes that uh, there are different views, uh, but he says that um, he rejects, interestingly, the view that says that the stars will end up where they began. Uh, and his reasoning is that um, that takes 36,000 years for the stars to go through their whole system and get exactly back where they were before. And he takes it as doubtful the world will last that long. So, um, so he rejects that as implausible also because then a good astronomer could figure out when the world would end. And so, uh, so he says that God will choose a fitting arrangement of the stars, not because there's no better one than the other intrinsically. All right. So a few last comments, then I'll be open to some questions. Is this balance of things ad hoc? I don't think so. Um, Thomas is committed to the truth of the scriptures about eschatology above all, and about the renewal of the world and the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so if it says that there's no death or dying, then there's not going to be death or dying. If there's no tears, then you can't, you're not going to have generation of water either. Um, the, these things can't be happening. But he, what I find interesting about this account is he resists any attempt to merely say, God just prevents those effects from coming about. He knows that God can. God can prevent the heating motion of the fire for the three men in the fiery furnace in Daniel. But his view is committed to the idea that if things can remain as they are to accomplish what the new creation is, is to do, then they'll remain as they are, because that's why they were made that way in the first place. I think we need, when we consider this matter, and this is how I want to close, we need to remember that for Thomas, he's deeply committed when he talks about the world to the notion of ordo, of order. And it's the order of the world, not merely synchronically, but diachronically, taking into account its entire history, that is the order that God has in mind. That's the way we understand the goodness of that order from beginning to eternity. And not just how the parts play a role here and now, but how they've already been prepared for to play the role they'll play at different moments in the history of the world. Thank you, and I'm open to questions.